Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. September 8th, 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of the ideas behind American exceptionalism. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and welcome to everyone who's joining me over here at the Blog Talk Radio chat room. I feel like this is some sort of new grand opening or whatever. It is my first official day starting the new schedule. I mean, Wednesday sort of was, but here I am on a Friday, which is not my normal day. So thank you for those of you who are in uh, kind of joining me here for this inaugural day. As I said, I'm going to be doing this show three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I was always doing it Wednesday, but now Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern time, 12 p.m. Pacific time. There are going to be some exceptions here and there. There's days that I've got commitments that are going to clash with with the day. So the only one that I know of so far is going to be Friday the 29th of September, which is over a couple weeks away or so, right? Something like that. Um, I guess three weeks from now? Yes, that sounds right. So occasionally I'm, I'm going to have an exception that I'm going to have to make, but I'm going to be here Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Now you might ask, why only three days? Because I told you guys the story. I was inspired by Adam Carolla. He did five days a week for an entire year before he ever made any money doing this. So why only three days for me? One thing that I'm going with is my feeling that for me, you know, Adam Carolla is not a philosopher and he's doing a pile of guests and he's got a you know, great access to a lot of ton, you know, ton of great guests on his show. For me, it's going to be mostly me talking to you. I'm going to try to get some good guests here and there. I think I should do more of that. But I'm going with what I feel like I really want to immerse myself into with this in terms of the news of the day, things in the world, how much, you know, do I feel that I really have to tell you guys Um, My sense is that three days a week is going to be the right thing for me to do. Uh, I don't always go by emotions at all. I mean, obviously, so many of us have emotions that we, you know, don't 
don't we actually agree with, you know, some emotion will come up and you say, no, no, that's something from my childhood or whatever the hell and you dismiss it. But in this sense, I think I have a really kind of balanced sense of what is good for me with respect to doing this. I, I feel like I want to do this. I'm going to try three days a week, see how it goes for a while and, you know, see if that is the right amount. Who knows? I might dive in and then I decide that I love it so much more. I'm going to go to five days a week, but I don't want to overcommit to you guys. I, I want to do the thing that I feel comfortable with. The other thing is, yes, well, I've told you guys that my goal is to actually make this into a career. I don't have this idea that I'm going to be necessarily the Rush Limbaugh or the Mark Levin. I don't have the more popular set of ideas on, on the one thing. But the other thing is, I don't have this goal of, oh, I'm going to try to be the most fabulously wealthy I have, no matter if I have to immerse myself in the horrible news of the day, five days a week, whatever. I'm going to try to carve out a living doing this. And I have other things that I want to do as well. So I still have this book that I need to finish on privacy. I have a blog that I really should try to resurrect. I shouldn't say the word should. My grandmother would say, don't shit on me, right? Don't shit on yourself. But there is this very attractive idea of a blog that I was playing with for a while out there. And I need, I need, see, need, should. I, <laughs> there are good arguments for resurrecting the blog News Sandwich. News Sandwich is a really cool concept. And if I can get the progress on the book, the legalizing privacy book that I need to, that I need to do. Sorry, I've I've decided that that is a commitment. A uh, new sandwich I'm still toying with. So that is a possibility. And then I'm also considering doing some online teaching, maybe some speaking events as well, traveling to speaking events. If you have a community group and you're interested in having me come out and give a talk, start sending me information about your group and what you'd like to do and that kind of stuff. You can do that through the blog at don'tletitgo.com. As for online teaching, I'm thinking philosophy of law that some people have expressed in taking a class from me. I've taught that at university for years. Also introductory logic, critical thinking, which is something that I've complained about not being taught properly in the university. It turns out that the most popular post that I have on my entire blog at don'tletitgo.com is one in which I analyze one of Obama's speeches and I talk about all the logical fallacies that he committed in the speech. And somewhere my blog post has gotten into a curriculum that's being spread around the world. I have people from countries all over the world come and read this post. And I'm thinking, well, why not offer some sort of a, you know, kind of rigorous online course in introductory logical fallacies, critical thinking and stuff. I've taught that university before as well. So those are things I'm thinking about. But again, in terms of a side project, other than this show, my first priority is that book. So like I said, there's other things that I want to spend my time doing. I have this sense that three days a week is a good rhythm for me. We're going to try it, see how we do. Oh, there's one final factor. People cannot spend their entire lives listening to me either. I'm talking about potentially throwing four and a half hours a week worth of content out there for you. And everybody's got a bunch of other stuff to listen to. Many of you also listen to Yaron Brook, and he's got a bunch of hours that he puts out there for you guys. I don't know if Carol is right, but during the masterclass that I took with him, he said that 
the average podcast listener spends about 11 hours a week listening to podcasts. And that's not a lot amount of, you know, not a big amount of time. And I'm competing for some of that. So I'm very much aware that your time is valuable. Um, I, I would like to have four, four and a half hours of your life to me. Uh, the, you know, go ahead and uh, please try it and see if you can spend four or four and a half hours with me a week. I would be honored if you do. So that's my thinking about the three day a week schedule. If you go over to the blog at don'tletitgo.com, by the way, someone in the chat room is asking, can you post a link uh, to uh, talking something that uh, like, can, can you post link to this post you're talking about, please? Oh, can I do it? Okay. So Obama's speech, you know what I'll do is I'll, I'll throw it in the program notes in a little bit because it's going to take a little bit of, of searching. Let me see. Actually, there's one thing I could do maybe to find it really quick. If I can find it really quick, see if somebody's visited it. Sometimes my visitor stats on a show day will just get buried because everyone's here looking for the show. But almost every day someone is on that blog post. Yeah, here it is right here. Okay, let me find it. Here I go. Okay, I'm going to grab the link. I'm going to throw it in the chat room. Okay. That was easier than I thought. Here. Okay. Here's the post. I'm throwing it in the chat room over at Blog Talk Radio. Benefits of listening live, for those of you who do. This is the most popular post on my blog, and it's all about logical fallacies. And like I said, somewhere it got into a curriculum. And it made me think that that is something that there's a demand for potentially a quality course on this. And of course, the course that I taught was always based on Leonard Peikoff's course on introductory logic. But I always give my own little spin and fresh examples and maybe a little different presentation of the traditional logical fallacies than he did. There are options with respect to a lot, a lot of that stuff. So those, that's my thinking. Great. Yeah. Check that out. And as I said, go to the blog, don'tletitgo.com. You can check out the program notes for today's show. You can see the title of today's show, Level 5 Irrationality in the Wake of Harvey and Irma. We have two horribly destructive hurricanes, one past, one still going strong and doing damage out there. Uh, all best wishes to everybody who has been affected by either of these and is still being affected I hope that all of you who are in the path of Irma are being careful and have taken proper precautions, evacuated if you needed to, all that all that good stuff. But what I've noticed out there, are there are three types of irrationality that have been on display in the wake of these destructive storms. So I'm going to talk about all of them. Level five. Um, you can decide whether it's level five. I know when I put this title out there on Twitter this morning, people started to speculate, well, what is level zero versus level five? And we could you know, come up with a rubric describing what all of these different levels correspond to. If you want to call in and tell me what your read of this is, but level five irrationality, it makes for the catchy title, doesn't it? Is, are all of these at a level five? You can also tell me whether you think all of them are. The first is, the broken window fallacy, the so-called broken window fallacy, it is alive and well. It's interesting because I was looking at the commentary out there, and there's a couple places where the commentary appears, and that's Zero Hedge and also National Review. And it's a little bit long on 
commentary and a little short maybe on actual examples, but I did post a link in the program notes to an actual example from CNBC where they are committing this broken window fallacy. Now they're dressing it up in a way they're sort of obscuring it, but it's there. It's there. Selfishness in the chat room says 500,000 cars destroyed in Houston. Yeah. I'm not surprised, not surprised at all. So that's one example, broken window fallacy. We're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about global warming alarmism and in particular the tie of these storms, these destructive storms to the use of fossil fuels, which supposedly has caused catastrophic global warming and all of this weather. So we will talk about that. There's been some of that out there, maybe more of that even than the broken window fallacy. I think the people who are prone to, you know, kind of trot out the broken window fallacy were a little bit chastened by other times that it's been through the media in, in the recent past. So maybe they're not using it nearly as much. They're not, the, as I said, the CNBC post, we'll look at it. It, it kind of disguises it a little bit. Then the third, and yeah, I'm, I'm going to take this on, although I have not been talking about it. I've, there's been a number of people, you know, I've been tweeting to Donald Trump when I have occasion and something that I feel I would like to say to him in reaction and argue with him about something that he tweets out there in the world. And as you probably know, he proclaimed September 3rd after Harvey a national day of prayer. And he made a tweet out there with the whole proclamation. There's a little video and everything. I didn't watch the video, but you may have, if you like that kind of thing. Um, So a lot of people were, tweeting back to him and it was a lot of very clever stuff and you know I just I'm an atheist I've always been an atheist I have been an atheist since probably age 10 is what I'm remembering but I'm not militant about it and when you've got a bunch of people hurting I just don't feel like smearing nose smearing their noses in in religion and the ineffectiveness of faith and all it, it, it's not the kind of thing that I do, but I do feel like I, I need to talk about it. I'm going to talk about it a certain way. I'm going to talk about it in a personal way where I have myself witnessed um, a quite destructive effect of religion in my own life. And so I will share that with you later. Um, but yeah, there's, I mean, at least you guys could agree maybe that if you make a big deal out of having a national day of prayer as if that's going to be very effective. I would say most of the listeners to that show, even if you are religious would say, you don't want to overemphasize. There's that phrase, God helps those who help themselves. I would imagine that any religious listener to this show would subscribe to that. Um, so I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to take that on as well. And there's a couple of things that I'm going to talk about and with some good news as I said don't let it go.com is the place where I've posted those program notes if you want to call in and talk about anything that I've got here 760-888-5817 is the number press one and let me know that you're on the line and you'd like to talk one of the benefits of the three day a week show is I don't feel so incredibly rushed there may even be days I'm open to this idea. There may even be days where an hour hits and I feel like, boy, I've told you everything that I have to tell you on that particular day. 
I don't see it happening because I tried to constrain myself to an hour one day and I couldn't do it. It was very uncomfortable. I feel like my brain's biological rhythm is about an hour and a half, but we'll see. This is, we're going to, you know, do at least an hour up to an hour and a half, three days a week for a while. And then I revisit and see how it all goes. So thank you, as I said, again, for joining me on this experiment. If you would like to help in this venture, there are a couple ways. One is to share the show. Go ahead and share the show with whoever. So if you listen to my show and you actually like my show, I would appreciate it if you can help me spread the word about it because I'd like to increase listenership by at least an order of magnitude. And that would be wonderful if you can help me with that. Then the second thing, of course, is if you would like to donate. At some point, I may end up setting up, and I've told you guys about this, a Patreon site. But as of now, I've already got a method by which you can donate through PayPal over at the blog at don'tletitgo.com. So that is that. Excellent. Um, Josh in the chat room says, you post the link that you want shared, I will share. The link is where you're listening right here. So this Blog Talk Radio link that you use to listen to the show live, especially if you're sitting here in the chat room, I know you're on that link. That URL is going to be live for after the show and everything too, where they can listen to the recorded podcast. So that will help. Um, you can also, if you want, I don't know if you're a subscriber through iTunes, but at my blog at don'tletitgo.com, I mean, that's a good one to share as well. Just share don'tletitgo.com. But in the each you know show post that I do over there, I put a link to iTunes as well. So if you want to go ahead and share the iTunes link, that's in the post over there. Actually, let me go ahead. I can just dig that up really quick and find that for you. I'll give you every excuse to help me. I, I'm not the kind of person where I'm going to be pushing this every single show a lot, but I have to ask you guys for help. Um, obviously, I have, I have to ask. Otherwise, I can't get it. And so I'm going to ask you guys sometimes. So here's the iTunes link that if you want to share and urge people to subscribe via iTunes, that is awesome as well. And if you haven't subscribed yet, then go ahead and subscribe, and then it'll be loaded up in your podcast app. So as I said, go over to the blog at don'tletitgo.com, and we're going to start at, with this level five irrationality that's out there. And you know, a question I'm going to ask too is, is the irrationality itself more destructive than the hurricanes sort of instigated or spurred or inspired some of this irrationality out there. And I'll argue that, yes, it is. That's not, not a big surprise given the set of ideas that I subscribe to out there. But the broken window fallacy. Now, what is the broken window fallacy? If you want the classic example of the broken window fallacy, you look to the original presentation of this. And this is from Frederick Bastiat. I've got the libertarian reader that I was using for a class that I was teaching at the law school in, in the spring, but there's other presentations of this out on the web as well. They say, okay, well, there's James Goodfellow, some solid citizen. His incorrigible son has happened to break a pane of glass. He says, if you have been present at this spectacle, certainly you must also have observed that the onlookers, even if there are as many as 30 of them, seem with one accord to offer 
the unfortunate owner the self-same consolation. And this is the consolation that all the onlookers to this broken window, what the, the consolation that they offer this guy, quote, it's an ill wind that blows nobody some good. Such accidents keep industry going. Everybody has to make a living. What would become of the glaziers, the people who make windows, if no one ever broke a window? End quote. Now, this presentation is part of what Bastiat calls the, the seen versus the unseen. Contrast those things that are seen, which is not seen. We see this damage. We're going to see that the glazier is getting a lot more business, but nonetheless, there's a problem. So he says, suppose that it will cost six francs to repair the damage. If you mean that the accident gives six francs worth of encouragement to the aforesaid industry, I agree. I do not contest it in any way. Your reasoning is correct. The glazier will come, do his job, receive six francs, congratulate himself, and bless in his heart the careless child. That is what is seen. He says, but if by way of deduction you conclude, as happens only too often, that it is good to break windows, that it helps to circulate money, that it results in encouraging industry in general, I am obliged to cry out, that will never do. Your theory stops at what is seen. It does not take account of what is not seen. And he says, it is not seen that since our citizen has spent six francs for one thing, he will not be able to spend them for another. It is not seen that if he had not a window pane to replace, he would have replaced, for example, his worn out shoes or added another book to his library. In brief, he would have put his six francs to some use or other for which he will not now have them. Then he says, let us consider industry in general. The window having been broken, the glass industry gets six francs worth of encouragement. That is what is seen. If the window had not been broken, the shoe industry or some other would have received six francs worth of encouragement. That is what is not seen. And he says, and if we were to take into consideration what is not seen because it is a negative factor as well as what is seen because it is a positive factor, we should understand that there is no benefit to industry in general or to national employment as a whole, whether windows or broken or not. Right? Because why? There has been a destruction of capital. You cannot gain by a destruction of capital. Now, where have we seen actual evidence of this fallacy? Like I said, we've got Zero Hedge and we've got National Review complaining about this fallacy being committed in the wake of Harvey in particular, but probably you'll see it a bit after Irma. Here is CNBC headline, Devastating Storm may ultimately boost U.S. GDP. Goldman sees $30 billion in damages. Now, Zero Hedge was saying a lot more that the damages were going to be more than from Katrina. But, you know, let's not even worry about whether it's record-setting as the uh, declaration by our president that this is all record-setting and everything else. Let's not worry about that. We have billions and billions and billions of dollars worth of damage and the question is, how in the world can you say that this helps the economy? Devastating Hurricane Harvey, unprecedented in its rainfall, could be a slight negative for U.S. growth in the third quarter. But economists say it may ultimately provide a tiny boost to the national economy 
because of the rebuilding in the Houston area. A tiny boost. Goldman Sachs economists estimate a very preliminary impact of the storm to be $30 billion in property damages, making it the ninth largest since World War II in terms of domestic property damage. They say in a note that the storm could take 0.2 points off of growth in the third quarter. Why? Because of impact to the energy sector. They're saying, okay, well, the energy sector is this important thing, and Houston is important to that sector of the economy. J.P. Morgan chief economist said that their analysts estimate the physical damage to be between 10 and 20 billion, etc. But then they say uh, he's not changing his forecast for the 2.3% third quarter growth and 1.8% fourth quarter growth. So we have somebody else saying it's not even a negative impact on the economy. Says the Morgan economist, quote, usually what we see is transitory. Usually you see a little bit of weakness as interruption to business occur. Houston is not a small footprint. You can see a disruption to business. Then you tend to see a spurt, said Diane Swank, CEO of DS Economics. Quote, this is a different kind of area than Katrina. It has airport hubs and things like that. So if it's got airport hubs and stuff, then somehow that's going to spur economic growth and you're going to get around the broken window fallacy, the idea that we have destroyed a piece of capital that would not have been had to be replaced otherwise and has displaced money that you could have spent on a more productive or a more enjoyable use. Forget all that because Houston has airport hubs and things like that. Um, Continuing with the CNBC piece, growth is tracking at just around 3% in the third quarter. Swank, from the CEO of DS Economics, estimates Harvey could add a few tenths of a percent of growth to the fourth quarter, which she sees as 2.4%. Trump is going to make very rapid action on Harvey relief funding. So, of course, you know, that's all going to add something into the mix and get us around the broken window fallacy, right? And then they say, that uh, Feroli, who is one of these economists is from the J.P. Morgan guy, in a note points out that the economy in the affected region could suffer while the national economy benefits. Okay, so you can get around the broken window fallacy if you distinguish between local, right? The local economy, we're, yeah, it's a broken window. But for the national economy, there's a benefit overall, he's going to try to say. He noted that after Sandy in 2012, New York's economy suffered, but the national economy did not. Same thing happened with the Louisiana economy. I mean, is the local area part of the national economy or is it not? Are you trying to say that, like, if you look at everybody else benefits because they're benefiting from the spending, whereas that local person is having, you know, to spend money that they would have spent on other good stuff on this broken thing. It's a destruction of wealth. I don't care how you measure it, how you try to hide it. Now, one of the things they want to say, okay, well, GDP increases. Um, You have to balance that out with what they're acknowledging is going to happen too is inflation. So how are you measuring your GDP? Well, maybe if you measure your GDP in a certain way and you ignore inflation when you're looking at GDP, then GDP looks like it's growing. But then you bring in inflation and you'll see that all of it's completely wiped out. Goldman economists say the overall impact of the hurricane on second half growth is uncertain because the negative effects will likely be offset 
by an increase in business investment and construction activity. It's just to me, it is unbelievable that they're, it's like, okay, well, we know there's this broken window fallacy, but we want to give you some good news about the destructive effects of this hurricane. And well, we can look at these numbers in an isolated way and, and make it look like there's some growth. There is not growth when something is destroyed. Now, what might go on, right? We could start talking about psychology, and I'm not a psychologist, but many of you know that if you are in a period of your life where you're faced with adversity, sometimes that adversity can motivate you and make you more productive. So suppose they were to say, okay, um, you know, these people, they're affected by adversity and they're actually going to become more productive. And so they're going to more than make up for the destruction that was, but there's no story that they're telling like this. Instead, they're just trying to say, oh, there's going to be this increase in investment and construction activity. But then finally they come in and they say, there are also some ways the storm could spark a rise in inflation, which has been surprisingly weak this year. Yeah. So if you have GDP measured in the same dollars and then you have inflation, your rise in GDP is completely gone, is ridiculous. Um, in the chat room, Tim is giving us an example of another type of irrationality that we're seeing in the wake of this. Jennifer Lawrence has suggested that storms are Mother Nature's rage. This is something that we might look at in the third segment, which is going to be about the devastating effects of religion. Patrick Dehan, who is the senior petroleum analyst at GasBuddy, estimates that there's going to be a 25 to 30 cent per gallon jump in prices at the pump due to this. They said by Labor Day weekend. I actually haven't really been watching. You know, when I live in California, there's almost no point in looking at gas prices at the pump. And you want to know why? Because in California, a couple of years ago, I can't remember exactly how long we just suffer here in the people's state of California, they passed this law that basically said that they can change the number of cents per gallon tax on gasoline from, you know, whatever bureaucracy at the state of California level. They can change it at any time. And what you see happening is that whenever the economic conditions are good, and the gas price would be really, really low at the pump, the state of California just piles on more tax because they figure you can handle it at that point in time. And then if the prices per gallon go up, then maybe they ease up a little bit on the amount of tax that they charge us. It's still, you know, if you drive from Nevada to California, those of you who have done the drive to Las Vegas and come in, you know that you always want to buy and, you know, buy gas and fill your gas tank on the other side, on the, on the other side of the border, because as soon as you drive across the border from Nevada to California, somewhere between what, 20 and 50 cents per gallon difference in gas, at least the, you know, the idea of some of the gas prices that you guys get all around the country. It's amazing that yes, I have beautiful weather in California. I can go out and do my walks and take pictures of my flowers on a daily basis, but there's prices that we pay as well. In any event, yes, this is the first type of irrationality that we've seen out here. We are seeing CNBC, a leading mainstream media outlet, 
citing some of the leading financial firms in the country, all committing some sort of version of the broken window fallacy. Yeah, they're trying to disguise it, add some layers of obfuscation and stuff, but at root, they're trying to say that there can be an economic benefit because of the horrible destructive events of a hurricane. And that is just blatantly irrational. Uh, People are California bashing in the chat room over here at Blog Talk Radio. I think it's a good time to take a little musical break. So I will be back in just a few. Okay, everyone, I am back. If you are listening to the podcast, you may be hearing one or more ads during these little breaks that I'm taking. If you listen to live show, that's one of the benefits is that you just hear a little bit of music and I'm right back here. So now if I was really good, I could just blithely ignore the slams to living in California. I I hear this all the time because I do. I post bad news about California and everybody likes to tell me, well, just move, go someplace else I'm a native that's one thing but you know the other thing there are some benefits to living here I would move someplace else if I thought that in the balance overall of my life and all of my values and everything that I could pursue them elsewhere and I'm, I may move but I'm not for instance going to go live in Texas right now because the weather is horrible and I don't have any particular draw to Texas I have some good friends there but not enough not enough to to get me to move at this point. Mo in the chat room is trying to defend me. Um, He says, hard to bash California just based on context. It's hard to say that any state is better than the others. They're all mixed. I've heard Yaron Brook talk about this as well. When you choose a place to live, there is a number of factors that you have to balance. There's no one place in the entire world that, for example, is completely free. And suppose there was, there might be some other things about it you think make it, you know, on the balance, not the place for you to live. There's no Galt's Gulch, as Mo says in the chat room, unfortunately. So each of us have to have that balance of all the different values out there. Gasoline tax profits and all that kind of stuff they're talking about in the chat room. Yeah. Um, Beautiful. Oh, they're saying Texas is having California weather for a couple days this week. Oh, that's nice. You guys are getting some some lucky stuff out there. We're finally having California weather. Again, freedominthe50states.org. Yeah, if you want to move just based on freedom and stats and, and, you know, all the economics and stuff, you can look at freedom in the 50 states within the U.S. There's heritage and other people post freedom around the world, the freedom index around the world. And you can just spend your whole life moving from place to place based on Where's number one, but there are other things. Uh, Okay, so enough on that. Like I said, first example of irrationality that we've seen in light of the two hurricanes out there is this broken window fallacy. And it is really being trotted out again, despite the fact that Bastiat eviscerated it 
at least a couple centuries ago. So next, we have global warming alarmism on display. This is a horrible, destructive storm. People are very upset. And so if they are not thinking clearly about it, I think they are vulnerable to arguments from global warming alarmists who say, well, it's our evil consumption of fossil fuels. And yeah, I mean, I would put Jennifer Lawrence into this. This is Mother Earth, you know, expressing her anger and everything. Maybe this is what Jennifer Lawrence has in mind. I haven't read Lawrence, but maybe she has in mind this. We have been abusing Mother Earth and this is Mother Earth acting out against us and everything else. <sighs> Quote, we should be naming hurricanes after Exxon and Chevron, not Harvey and Irma. That's the Environmental Group's 350.org's takeaway from a peer-reviewed study published today, and the date that they give you is just a day ago, so it's yesterday, in the journal Climate Change, which seeks to hold individual fossil fuel corporations accountable for causing global warming. The study's authors say they not only figured out how much pollution corporations have emitted, but how much their emissions contributed to the rising oceans and global warming. Specifically, the study asserts that the 90 largest carbon producers, including BP, Chevron, ConocoPhillips, and ExxonMobil, have cumulatively, cumulatively, let's say that 12 times fast, cumulatively, caused up to 50% of the increase in global mean surface temperature since 1880 and up to 32% of the global sea level rise. So here you are. You, your family, have suffered in the wake of hurricanes, Harvey and Irma, or you just have been watching a whole bunch of the videos that you can see of the horrible damage that have taken place. And again, you know, you keep hearing as much as you like to enjoy and consume fossil fuels and the products that come from fossil fuels, maybe you you look at this and you think, what if there's something to it? What if Mother Nature really is expressing her rage at us for our vast carbon footprints here on Mother Earth, etc.? Maybe you're susceptible to this. First of all, are you know are these storms really that unprecedented? You know, Donald Trump has been trotting it out there. I talked about why I think Donald Trump has been talking about how unprecedented these storms are. You can listen to my explanation of that in Wednesday's show. And again, the teaser for that is tell you exactly why I believe he's doing the same thing Andy Warhol did when he dyed his hair gray at age 35. So you can go ahead and and take a look at that. Um, Let me get some of the stuff that I got in reaction to posting this article on Facebook Earlier, I've got a Facebook friend named James who was questioning some of the global warming alarmist stats and everything else. He says, as a point of reference, the worst storm in U.S. history was the Galveston hurricane in 1904. He says somewhere between 8,000 to 12,000 people died. Winds were 150 miles per hour, like Irma now. Storm surged 20 feet. He says this was only a decade or two after oil was first discovered and hardly in use. Automobile was barely in production, still a toy of the very rich. Massive dangerous storms are common throughout history. He says it's only because of the satellite imagery, which is a product of 
1960s and even in limited use until more recently that we even know about many of these storms and the scale that they're at. So this idea that somehow because we can see and track and document the destructive effects of these storms so much better now that that means that it's been global warming that's causing them and that we should all drastically reduce our consumption of fossil fuels or as 350.org is arguing, we should charge money for the damage caused by the hurricanes to the fossil fuel companies. It, it It just doesn't add up at all. So you can't say that there's new evidence. Now, then the question is, what was the existing state of evidence about the so-called destructive event effects of global warming and the, you know, the human cause of global warming, the human contribution to global warming? For that, I'm going to defer to a very rational expert on this, and this is Alex Epstein. But I, you know, I really like the way that Alex deals with this topic because Alex will say, "Yeah, look." there is some global warming. Perhaps there's a little bit of an effect on climate storms and everything else. However, if you balance out the beneficial effect of fossil fuels on the human environment, the environment for human beings living on earth, there is a tremendous beneficial effect that comes from the use of fossil fuels. And it far outweighs any contribution to global warming and any destructive effects of global warming for human beings. So if your standard of value is what is life for human beings, none of this means anything. Again, it's false that these storms are any worse than things that we've had in history. And, you know, as James is pointing out, 1904 with the most destructive storm is way before fossil fuels were in wide use. I have another friend on Facebook, uh, Katan, who was pointing out, he says, in poor countries like India, storms like Hurricane Harvey would have caused thousands of people to die. And that was James' point, right? That thousands of people died in that 1904 Galveston hurricane. Uh, he says, it's, this is Katan, continue with his comment here. He says, it's precisely the sort of wealth for which cheap and plentiful energy is essential that saves people's lives in richer countries. Yes. And you'll see that if you actually keep your eyes open and you're rational about this and you look at the economies that are more primitive, that take advantage of the tremendous energy and uh, you know, kind of productive capacity that fossil fuels give you. There are economies, very primitive economies out there. Those economies, when they are affected by these storms, everything is completely destroyed. More people die and everything else. Those of us who are, you know, the more developed countries and areas that have taken advantage of the life-saving benefits, the human environment beneficial effects of fossil fuels, those areas are faring much better in the wake of these destructive hurricanes. So you can't just, you know, take this one thing out of context. Again, might there be a little bit of a contribution to global warming because of the human use of fossil fuels? Yes. But overall, the use of fossil fuels is so incredibly beneficial for human life that the idea that we should 
cut out fossil fuels or what is tantamount to it, right? Because what they want to do is they want to make the fossil fuel companies suffer. They want to make BP, Chevron, ConocoPhillips, ExxonMobil, they want to make them suffer. They have to you know, disgorge some of their profits because they're the big evil fossil fuel. Cor- if the, you know, big corporations are evil, but there's nothing more evil than a big corporation that sells fossil fuels that'll destroy the whole world. Um, there's no evidence that we should be doing that if our standard of value is what contributes to human life. They have a graphic history of Atlantic hurricanes that Tim has put here over in the chat room. Thanks, Tim, for adding that. Yeah, they don't like to talk about the the lives lost. History of Atlantic hurricanes. Got the link right there. Awesome. Beautiful. Thank you, Tim, for, for adding that. Yeah, so people need to keep their eyes open. They need not to, out of fear, because there is, some fear about things like this. Well, what if, you know, what if this is going to continue to be a very destructive trend of global warming? But apparently we haven't been hit by a real major hurricane here in the United States for, someone had said 12 years, but I'd have to go back and look and verify that statistic. But before Harvey, it had been 12 years or so. If it was really true that global warming was causing all this, we would have had extremely destructive hurricanes at a, at a faster rate as, as well but we're just not seeing that. So regardless of the media trying to get you stirred up and some of these environmentalist groups trying to, you'd say the word capitalize, but environmentalist groups shouldn't be entitled to the word capitalize. They're trying to take advantage of whatever persuasive appeal fear has and, you know, sympathy for those who are undergoing the damage, the sympathy for those people that whatever persuasive effect that could have, they're going to try to run with it and get you to agree with their policy proposals. Yeah. They talk about political science professors, of course, are going to comment on what's going on. They Now, 350 is supporting this measure of making fossil fuel companies pay for the staggering economic impacts of climate change. Multiple lawsuits, similar to some of the ones that have been successful against the tobacco industry, have been filed against fossil fuel companies over their failure to warn the public that the products could cause global warming. (laughs) Imagine that that's your analogy, right? So here's the tobacco companies that fail to warn you that cigarettes could cause lung cancer and they're going to say oh well it's a similar thing because fossil fuel companies have failed to warn the public that the products could cause global warming plaintiffs and environmental groups hope that the new science directly linking the corporation's emissions to climate change impacts will help their cause federal disaster coffers are going to run out of money and et cetera. And so our, you know, our judge is going to be persuaded by this garbage. Some of the judges, the ones that have been appointed, maybe, but I would assume that most people listening to this show could draw a very clear distinction between cigarettes. Now, you know, we could talk about what was the conduct of the tobacco companies with respect to the marketing of cigarettes and did they actually hide the destructive effects of of cigarettes and everything else. Cigarettes are far more destructive to human life. There is some benefit and some people 
they seem completely impervious to any cancer causing effects. It depends also on genetics and other things as well. But fossil fuels, without exception, have improved every single human life out there to such a drastic extent. To you know, to make this analogy between the two, I would say any wise or smart judge, any reasonable judge, should be able to see through this. Mo in the chat room says, I've never understood how given something as large and complex as climate with all the variables that can affect it, not only have they say they've boiled it down to a single variable, but they've isolated one contributing factor on that variable. You know, I had a guest post. I still have it. It's over at the blog. I'd have to find it and dig it up. But Debbie, uh, who sometimes listens to the show and sometimes calls in and talks, she had pointed out to me a lot of the evidence that the biggest factor in climate, you know, the temperature changes up and down and stuff has to do with the activity of the sun. It has nothing to do with us. We're, you know, yeah, maybe there's a little bit of a contribution. I, I, again, I like Alex's approach. He doesn't deny that there is some effect of human beings on increasing temperature, global temperature, things like this, but he takes a standard of value that is so different from any of these global warming alarmists because he takes the standard of value of human life. What is it that's going to best promote a healthy, clean human environment, a safe environment for us to live in? And as I said, you can use the media footage that's out there, you know, and, and use it as a way to, you know, kind of, draw the distinction, look at the different, employ Mill's methods, as it were. Do you remember Mill's methods? So Mill's methods would say that if you want to look at whether something is the cause of something, is something the cause of human survival? Is the consumption of fossil fuels the cause? You could look at those areas affected by the brunt of these storms where fossil fuels were in, uh, you know, prevalent use versus in those places where they don't use very much at all. And you'll see that the people in the areas that use it do a lot better. Now there is one, um, you know, human beings make mistakes, right? So Houston is a very developed area. They have a lot of actual economic freedom locally within Houston. They have very little in the way of zoning laws and stuff. There's a, there's a lot of good things to be said about Houston, but the, the climate in Houston, I've, I lived in the Houston area for a few years, so I know this quite well. The climate in the Houston area is so horrible. It's the worst that I ever experienced in my entire life. So miserable in terms of heat and humidity and everything else. That I would not want to live there, but there's a lot of freedom. Nonetheless, it seems that they have made a mistake in terms of development within Houston. And what they're saying in the wake of Harvey is that they had decided in Houston and just, you know, it happens over the years that they paved over a lot of the surface area of the ground in the Houston area. And what happens when you pave over the ground can't absorb the water and you're at risk for more flooding. So I'm not telling you that everything associated with human development and civilization and making the concrete jungle, so to speak, and that it's all, you know, unequivocally or, you know, without exception, good. Sometimes human beings make these mistakes. Um, yeah. 
Now, I've got someone in the chat room here who I haven't seen before. Hello, psychic card reader Brenda. Welcome to the show. Something about Russia, but I don't know what that is. We had a couple solar events recently. Okay, so maybe the solar events did contribute to the uh, hurricanes, potentially. I don't know if you could actually draw a connection. I'd have to defer to somebody who has the scientific knowledge. Recent solar events and a connection between that and hurricanes, it could happen. The lining up of the three storms, the tilting of the earth. Um, Now, Rob says the worst flooding in Houston was with areas with less paving, right? But maybe because the water flowed there from the areas with more paving? I'm speculating, Rob. But, I mean, to me, you know, when somebody tells me this, when they say, okay, there's this paving, and the paving prevents the water from seeping into the ground and that that could cause more flooding and you would that would be consonant with what you're saying that the worst area the worst flooding would be in the areas with the less paving why because the water's flowing there from the areas with the more paving maybe it seems to make some sense yeah so i i do i throw my logic into this if a doctor tells me something i'm sitting at a doctor's office it gives me an explanation i always do what leonard peikoff taught in his course on logic which is sit there and say okay maybe you're not a doctor you don't have a degree but does it seem logically consistent with anything that you can figure out within your knowledge? Is the story consistent within itself that they're telling you? This seems to make some sense that if you want the ground overall, you want to take advantage of all the surface area that could potentially absorb this water, you don't want to pave it a whole ton. Obviously, we need pavement, and pavement contributes a lot to human life and comfort and everything else. I don't want to be driving on dirt roads and all this, but there is a balance to be drawn. And if your standard is comfort and human life and everything else, I mean, think about this too, Houston, you know, again, experience talking here, pavement is hot. You don't want it to be any hotter in Houston, Texas. So get rid of some of that pavement. That would just be my advice. It's also kind of prettier to have trees and plants and flowers, all those wonderful flowers I post on Instagram. So yeah, I would say there's, there's that as well. Um, Okay, so now we're talking from Brenda, the psychic predictions of changes on the coastline and all of this. Now, I don't I don't believe in any kind of psychic. You have to cite some scientific studies for me on I mean, at least for me and my philosophy and in my show. I don't believe in any sort of supernatural dimension. You're going to have to give me evidence of something where you can point to reality, where you can point to a study that eventually points to reality. Josh in the chat room is starting to challenge in two years. How could it be that parts of Florida are going to be in underwater? You know, when I was a kid, I heard all the stories about California was going to, there was going to be an earthquake and it was going to break off into the ocean, right? California. And and there's that funny video that I actually shared on Facebook again the other day, because it's actually out there on the internet still. It's called the end of the world. And at the very end, they talk about, you know, even if, the whole nuclear holocaust doesn't happen and we don't all blow each other up. I, I love the the French line there. I am retired. I still giggle over it to this, which is so stupid, but I laugh. Anyway, at the very end, they have California breaking off and floating off into the ocean and going over to Hawaii and go, sup, what's up, right? Um, pretty damn funny. But when I was a kid, right, me, this wide-eyed kid, I believed this stuff and I remember having nightmares about 
California winding up under the water and what I was going to do. And um, I must have listened to my parents talk about, you know, when you're in severe flooding, you're supposed to get up on the roof and stuff. And I was, as a kid, when I was in bed worrying about this, either as my dream or as I was thinking consciously about it, making elaborate plans about what I was going to do when California was underwater and the rafts and everything else. So native Californians. Yeah. We have great songs written about us and all of that stuff, but we suffer, we suffer for it. Um, Cause we're, you know, we're subject to these stories. We're susceptible to believing these types of, of stories. So yeah. California breaks off and, and I go and sink and everybody. It's been nice knowing y'all. Um, okay. Let me tell you one more thing because I've got a few minutes before I'm going to take the next break, but there's one other thing I want to talk about. So what if you want to be rational about this? Suppose you said, okay, um, let, let's acknowledge that um, these storms aren't so incredibly destructive compared to storms of years past. And let's not put all the blame on fossil fuels. One thing you want to say, defense of the fossil fuel companies, is how is it fair to charge the fossil fuel companies for all the damage caused by these hurricanes when all of us, all of us, without exception, every human being who has used something that was produced as a consequence of fossil fuels has benefited, their lives have benefited from this, right? So we have benefited. We've all benefited from the use of fossil fuels. And somehow you think it's fair to charge those companies for it when all of us have a benefit from this. And that's one of the things that if you take a rational perspective on um, pollution and other effects of modern civilization, you realize that a certain amount of little bit of dirty air or maybe a storm will be slightly more severe because suppose you could trace this right again climate is such a huge complex thing that you can't really pinpoint all the causes but it seems reasonable to say okay there's this tiny bit of extra strength to these storms but suppose you said okay given that these are really destructive and we would like to if we can minimized use of fossil fuels, what are you going to do? Well, we've seen windmills, we've seen solar be completely inefficient. And as far as we know, neither of those actually have the ability to pay off. It's just something that the government likes to invest in because the government still subscribes in the broken window fallacy. Essentially, if you have the government, quote, investing the money that it stole from you in wind and solar, what they're doing is they're doing the equivalent of hiring people to dig holes and then fill them, and then dig holes, and then fill them again using your tax dollars, as if that somehow helps the economy. It does not. These are all sinkholes in terms of where money is put. So money is stolen from you and put into inefficient technologies like wind and solar. What should we be doing instead? What we should be doing is nuclear. And that's something I'd like to actually maybe get a guest on to the show, because I have a friend on Facebook, uh, Stephanie Gutman, who has done a lot of work on solar energy, I'm not solar, um, nuclear energy. And she's written for Real Clear Energy, and she knows a lot about the policy. But many of us are familiar with the fact that nuclear is very clean. 
And actually, it's very safe, notwithstanding whatever you think you heard after the Fukushima tsunami and everything. The nuclear plants are quite safe, and it provides a cheap, clean source of energy. And if you're really interested in reducing the human use of fossil fuels and you don't want government to be throwing tax dollars into a money pit, what you would do is you would free up the ability to create more nuclear power plants. Now, they're still talking about water and everything in there. Florida is swampland, so it has been underwater to be specific. Okay, okay. Don't go everybody bashing everybody else's place that they live. We're going to talk about sacrifice in a bit. Rob was talking about sacrifice, so we will talk about that. Okay, we are going to take one more brief little break. But yeah, so that's our second example of irrationality and this level five irrationality with respect to catastrophic global warming. The global warming alarmists who tell you the world is going to end if we keep using fossil fuels or if we don't impose this vast new tax on those evil fossil fuel corporations, the world is going to end. That's the second type of irrationality that we've seen. The third type I'll talk about right after this. Right after this. Let me get the music going. It's not going. So funny. Here it goes. everybody. I am back. And as I said, again, you're listening live. You're just getting the little tiny musical interlude, only about 30 seconds or so. If you are listening to the podcast, um, please, of course, do be tolerant of the fact that I'm throwing ads in here. I am trying to turn this into a job for me and support our sponsors if they are selling products that you're interested in because they are helping to make the show possible. So thanks, everybody. And as I said, go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com if you always want to see the program notes that I put up. I usually post them about an hour before showtime. Sometimes I'm running a few minutes late. It's one of these things where I, the work expands to fill the time available, and I am running around just frantically with my mind just putting in whatever I can see and looking at all the different collection boxes that I have to see if there's something that I want to throw in and and goes along with the show. One thing that the three day a week is going to help me do is that if I run out of time or I forget to put something in from a show prior, I'll have the opportunity to do it on the next show. And it won't be so far away that it seems like the distant past. It's usually just a couple days until the next show. So that'll relieve a little pressure on me because it it can get quite frantic. I, you know, you're on, he's on video and stuff during his show. I just, I'm just not there yet. I just don't feel that comfortable. I feel like I just throw so much into this that I am barely scraping myself together. I don't feel like I can look like anything, but we'll see. I, I will try to bring in video if I can get brave enough to to do it. So what's the third type of level five irrationality that I want to talk about? You know, Imagine we've got three types to talk about. We had the broken window fallacy. We had 
the global warming alarmists trying to sucker you into believing that we finally need to drastically cut our consumption of fossil fuels or we should make the evil fossil fuel companies pay for the destruction from the hurricane. Well, the third type is one, like I said, I in the very introduction of the show, I was saying I, I'm not eager to talk about this, but it, it needs to be discussed. It is an example of irrationality that I've seen in the wake of this. And it's the appeal to prayer or religion in the wake of these storms. And in particular, here's our president out on Twitter and making a presidential proclamation. And if you saw there, I remember seeing some video footage or photo or something. Not only did he do this, there was just so much fanfare. Imagine how much was spent on creating this photo op event that, you know, all they're doing is they're talking about everybody praying to a God. And again, I don't believe God exists. And it's not like I came to this from any sort of hostility. It didn't have to do with any sort of a negative experience. Um, in fact, I had a childhood that was relatively sort of, um, you know, just kind of my parents left me to my own devices is the way that I'll, I'll put it. And so I was pretty much free in my own mind to come up to my own conclusions about this stuff. And I just decided that there wasn't evidence for God. I didn't believe in God. And that has always been my primary reason for being an atheist is that there's just not evidence for this. But what I do is I say, okay, look, you know, here's our president. Here's all these people. There's all these media. There's expensive lighting and cameras and, you know, all of this Internet traffic and everything else all around this proclamation that everybody is supposed to pray to this being that I don't believe exists. Now, when I, you know, I started thinking about this consciously because I had friends in school and I like these friends. They invited me to church group meetings. They had, I guess, like Sunday school things. And I went to a church retreat weekend once. Um, I don't know how much I'll talk about that, but the thing that always got me, and I just, I remember this, you know, being this way when I'm 10 or something, when it comes time to pray and I was, I'd look around and I'd say, do they really believe this? I didn't believe it. I required evidence of the existence of God before I would believe it. So that's me. That's why I don't see my atheism. There's no animus in my atheism except for, I guess I feel, I feel bad when, when I observe what I think are destructive events. So I would say there, here's a, broken window, right? You know, here's people spending money on something that really isn't going to do any good. Now, what what good could it do for people to pray? I do think probably psychologically, and then, you know, I'd be just kind of projecting about this because, you know, when I was a kid, I spent a lot of time thinking about the fact that I just didn't have any sense of what it was like to believe that there was a higher being looking over you and that would listen and all this. But I could imagine that if you're praying that it might be a form of introspection and it might be a form of you thinking of what you can do to recover in the wake of a horrible event like a hurricane or, you know, maybe to battle a disease that you've been diagnosed with or any of the things that happen uh, or just, you know, to pray about what your career and your future is. You know, many times people who are running for president or make decisions to run for president, they'll tell you they prayed and God told them that this is the thing that they should do. 
it could just be a tool of introspection for people. And they say, well, it's God telling you, but really it's their subconscious telling them. And for me, like I said, there's certain feelings. When I talked about the beginning of the show, going for three days a week, I have this feeling, this sense that three days a week is the balance for me. I'll give it any sort of mystical thing. It is my subconscious, you know, throwing together its summation of all the evaluations that I've got hidden back there. And I trust that with respect to certain things like this. So I say, okay, I'm going to do this. That's what I think might be the positive effect of prayer. Now, if you think, okay, I'm going to pray to God and we're just going to sit back and do nothing. And, and some people will be like that. They'll think, okay, well, I've prayed. And so now I don't have to have any further effort. That would be wrong. But I would say that the better religious people that I know don't think that prayer is both, you know, the beginning and the end of the story they would say, you know, maybe it's some way to focus their thought in order to do good as as well as get the blessing of God. But one thing that is really hard to look at is, you you know, and there's, this is it's the problem of evil, the, the very historic problem. How is it that you can look at something like this and you say, well, God, let this happen. Maybe you're a deist and you think, okay, well, God's not directly involved now. And people have different beliefs about this sort of thing and they have different answers to this question. But these are really, really destructive events. I had one friend who had tweeted out on Twitter said something like, well, why don't you try the experiment to pray to change the trajectory of a particular hurricane and see if it works, you know, steer it away from Puerto Rico or Florida or Barbuda or whatever, just see if it works, see if it's effective. And if you try this experiment with cause and effect, it's probably not going to happen. Now, you know, again, I don't, I don't believe in God. So this is the way I look at it. Um, What though, you know, what, what is irrational and destructive about this? And, you know, for me, like I said, there's, there's not going to be any help that comes from a being that doesn't exist. And, and you're not going to make me believe in a God. So from my perspective, I say, you're at, in a lot of ways, you're wasting your time and energy and, and resources. I certainly don't want to see a president out there making a big deal about prayer. I think religion should be a private matter that, it shouldn't be made such a national spectacle having you know, the prayer breakfast and the national day of prayer and all that. That is not what I think should, should be going on in terms of government. I don't want to, you know, tell my religious friends and people whom I respect. I mean, God, Ben Shapiro, love the guy. Um, Ted Cruz, you know, I would have voted for Ted Cruz, even though I had some significant problems with him. He's religious okay, you know, you you guys are good people and you do so much good work out there and I don't want to bash it. At the same time, I don't want to see this big of a deal made out of it. So that's one thing. I think it's a, kind of a broken window. It's a bunch of resources thrown at something that isn't necessarily going to do any good. At best, this act of prayer, I think, is helping to focus people's minds on stuff they can do, but then they have to go ahead and do it. The phrase, God helps those who help themselves. Any of the better preachers that I could tolerate in my life have said something along those lines. There was one that my parents used to watch sometimes. Uh, He was a black preacher here in Southern California. Freddie Price, maybe? No, Price might not be the name. Oh, God, I can't remember his name now. If anybody knows this guy, 
but he used to be, you know, all about people helping themselves, not feeling guilty for success and all this. It was almost anti-religion, right? Because as this one article we'll talk about in a second, you know, states, the core of it is the sacrifice for, for God if you're, if you're doing it consistently. We'll talk more about religion on Monday, unfortunately, because it's the anniversary of 9-11. So we're going to have to bring in faith and force and the connection there and all, all of that. But for now, let me just share this one uh, bit of personal history where I have witnessed the destructive, um, really sad ef- effect of religion. And there may be some people in the wake of Harvey and Irma who have experienced something analogous to this, but I watched it in my own life and it's, it's, um, it's kind of poignant. I haven't talked about it on the show before, so maybe a little difficult. Um, my mother, she died when I was 27. She had Lou Gehrig's disease, which is a horrible disease. And she, in conversation with me, told me that she thought that she got that disease because God was trying to punish her. Okay, and I mean, this is a horrible, really horrible disease. Can you imagine believing that there is a mystical being, all-powerful, everything else, all good, um, that this being now is trying to punish you. I I don't have problems with my mom, and people have trouble with my parents, you know, have some significant problems with my mom. But I would never think that any problem with my mom would be such that a all-powerful, all-good being would consciously choose to inflict that on my mother and my mother honestly believe it. And I tried to talk her out of it. Um, but you know, Rand used to talk about, you can't convert your parents or anything else. I I did. I, I tried to do what I could to argue against it, but I don't think I did any good. Now, are there people who in the wake of Harvey or Irma, believe that somehow they brought this upon themselves and that God was somehow trying to punish them. How horrific and horrible would that thought be? How, how destructive would it be? Um, Oh, we've got people who are objecting. We've got psychic uh, card reader, Brenda in the chat room. And she is promoting a bit of mysticism. Mysticism isn't exactly, not every brand of mysticism is God. But, you know, psychic card reader Brenda, suppose somebody comes to you and you make some sort of a prediction about their life and it's not based on evidence or of any kind. Now, I would say probably good psychic card readers are probably just really good psychologists or at least good armchair psychologists. And so maybe you do using knowledge, either implicit or explicit knowledge of psychology, you might actually help some people sometimes and make good predictions about them. I've read articles about this where, you know, you're just really good at reading body language and all sorts of stuff and you can read things for them. Um, But the idea that how cards randomly come up in the deck and has anything to do with what the future of someone's life is and stuff, I would not believe because I would believe only things based on evidence and scientific causation and there's nothing to connect the 
you know, cards that come up in a, in a deck or whatever. So that's my take on it. And everybody in this chat room believes in the supremacy of, of reason, of using our reason, not believing in any sort of a mystical supernatural dimension. Uh, one of the damages that come from belief in mysticism and in particular religion is self-sacrifice. And Rob Abiera shared with me this link that you see in the program notes at don'tletitgo.com, self-sacrifice, the most powerful idea in our culture. And it, the article goes through a number of the recent movies and all the different places in the culture where we see that self-sacrifice is erected in effect on a pedestal as the best, most heroic thing you can do is sacrifice yourself. That idea is a profoundly Christian idea. It has been secularized thanks to Kant and other philosophers, but we owe that to Christianity, the idea that self-sacrifice is good. And self-sacrifice is self-sacrifice. It is destructive of human life, of, of the self. So I think it, it's also a very destructive idea. So this invocation by our president of religion and prayer is somehow a solution to the problems of destructive events in the world, I think is irrational. I think it's harmful. Uh, and if you wouldn't, you know, kind of want to flesh out the end of the thesis, which is why is this level five irrationality? Why would I call it level five? Why would I say it's so destructive? Reason is our means of survival as human beings. If you think of anything, any value that human beings rely upon for their lives, all the food and the way that we get it, just go through food, clothing, and shelter. And think about all the ways that you get food, clothing, and shelter, and then what goes into the production and making those values available to you. And behind all of that is the use of human reason. Human reason requires observance of reality, strict adherence to logic, if you don't strictly adhere to logic, the plane is going to fall out of the sky. Um, people are saying I've helped her show. Okay, that's fine. Um, probably not with my audience, but that's okay. Um, you've got intuition. Brenda, if you've got intuition, what you've got is a some sort of subconscious judgment based on experience with people. You've got some sort of psychological. I get intuition about people that's based on sort of subconscious judgments, but I, and I don't necessarily have all the psychological language to make that explicit, but sometimes I've absorbed it just through repeated observance of cause and effect. I think you've probably got a lot of that in you. It's unfortunate that you put a mystic label on it um, because you could probably do people a lot more good if you stayed away from the mystic connection, because there is no causal connection again between the way that cards randomly come up or somebody told a story about what cards mean what and stuff this doesn't have a causal connection i think any of the good that you do is either by um, listening to people or providing them with some sort of good psychology feedback um, and and just wishing them well and, and trying to help them some of that can be helpful people are coming to you seeking help and if you can offer them decent advice just based on common sense and life experience, you can do people some good, but it's not based on any sort of a mystic dimension or the power of the cards or anything else, not in my belief system. So, um, so that's that. So let me, let me go back over here making, making my point. What is, what is the destructive uh, bit of irrationality to the extent that you are entertaining any of these irrational ideas if you are 
giving into fear and deciding that we're going to drastically reduce our consumption of fossil fuels or you're going to vote for a measure that is going to tax the fossil fuel companies because they're so evil. They just, you know, they cause the hurricanes. If you decide you're going to suddenly pursue religion or other forms of mysticism, you're going to give your life over to a so-called higher power. You, you are not then recognizing the good parts of what it is that you are do are doing, which is relying on your own rational faculty to observe the facts of reality to decide that what you want to do is live your life and enjoy your life using your reason to produce the values that sustain your life that make it better. If you engage in irrationality of any kind, you are interfering with that life-giving process. This is an essential life-giving process. Uh, This is the same reason that objectivism has what I believe is a unique view of honesty, and we'll talk about that on some show for sure as it, as it comes up. But I love objectivism's very value-oriented promote, uh, you know, approach to honesty. Honesty is not about serving your duty to other people to not tell a lie or make sure you're not found out by God or found out by others. I mean, if you could get away with it, everything would be fine. It's not about what you can get away with. It's not about duty. It is about the functioning of your rational mind. The functioning of your rational mind should be inviolate. Uh, You know, again, people make mistakes and everything else, but you should be vigilant about being as rational as you possibly can in every area of your life and always improving in that regard. And if you give in to any of the forms of irrationality that we talked about here in the wake of this, these hurricanes, these destructive events, then you are crippling that rational faculty that you have to your ability to survive and you may think oh well i can get away with a little bit of irrationality here or there can't you know you it's like it's like you know there's one little moldy raspberry in the corner of the raspberry box is the way that i think about it it's going to spread and your rational faculty is a total too and you will know you will be aware of you're giving into irrationality and that's going to affect your self-esteem. It's because, you know, again, if, if you understand this point, it will affect your self-esteem. It will affect your confidence in your ability to sustain your life and your sense of whether you are deserving of happiness in this world and everything else. So it's crucially important. And so I would say those people who are purveyors of irrationality, shame on them. But particularly, I would just like to dump on Trump. Just, I don't know, because it's fun, but it just doesn't have a place in politics. Let's take religion at least out of politics, sir. Let's not have a huge fanfare and national proclamations. And he tweeted about it again. Don't forget that, you know, the September 3rd is the national day of prayer. It's quite sad. So... Um, so yes, level five irrationality on these different fronts in in the wake. And I I think that that irrationality, if it's allowed to take root, if it is spread in any serious way, if it's not just a momentary blip afterwards, then it will have destructive effects that are far more destructive than the hurricanes themselves. So shifting gears. I am going to talk about some good news stories over there. Uh, actually, I guess a little bit of sort of badish news, but nothing 
nothing along the lines of widespread irrationality. As I said, I will go out there on Twitter and tweet to our dear leader, as I call it, every day if I can, if there's something that I feel I can say. When I was looking on Twitter this morning, I was just going to share the tweet about Trump's proclamation. I looked again at what he had tweeted today. And earlier when I looked at it, maybe because I had my you know, I didn't have my coffee yet. I couldn't think of a particular response to it. I, I don't know. My thinking was fuzzy. So then I go back and suddenly, yes, I did have a thought. If I have something to say to him, I will say it. Sometimes what I say is a complex thought that I try to put in 140 characters and it doesn't come across at all. And that might be the case with the tweet I have out there today. I thought it was funny. I was making myself laugh about it, but maybe you won't laugh as much as I do. Trump has been being pummeled in the conservative media recently because he made a deal with the Dems, the Democrats, about the debt. He's raising the debt ceiling in a temporary raise of the debt ceiling that's going to expire at the end of the year. I'm not a political pundit in any way. If you saw me on Steve Hilton's Next Revolution show you know I was leaving politics to the other two experts who are more political, and I was talking policy, policy, policy. I'm not a political person, but I'm reading from the political people that Trump has destroyed any leverage he might have to get what he wants in exchange for raising the debt ceiling later. Why? Because he has created an end-of-year emergency by allowing this, I guess it's a three-month extension or whatever, that's going to come up at the end of the year. They're going to be bumping up against the debt ceiling again at the end of the year. And it, it's just a bad deal. And Trump has been going out on Twitter. He's not really saying, you know, he, he's not taking it on directly, this beating that he's getting from the Levin and Shapiro and other conservative commentators. What he's doing is he's complaining about the Republicans and he's saying, well, I had no choice except for to work with the Democrats. Why? Because you wouldn't get rid of the filibuster. And if you remember, I actually did tweet back to him about that a while ago when he was urging the Republicans, just get rid of this filibuster rule. And the way I see it, you know, we can have a long discussion over, you know, beer, wine, whatever, about exactly what the system of checks and balances should look like. But what we do know is that the structure of our republic with its system of checks and balances is a bulwark against mob rule, against democracy, like you had in Athens that caused Socrates to have to drink the hemlock, right? Socrates drinking the hemlock is bad. And given that we've already done an amendment to our constitution that has provided for now popular election of senators as opposed to appointment of senators by state legislatures, since we've already done that, we've gotten rid of at least one of the original system of checks and balances and moved it more in the direction of the mob rule. And I think if you go to the filibuster rule in the Senate, you are moving more in that direction. And to me, it's very dangerous, particularly with what the mob is wanting these days. Trump is an example of what you're going to get if you've got mob rule, and I'm not liking it. So you know, he, but he's complaining. So he's saying basically, well, Republicans, they refuse to do this. So that's what's in my tweet there. All of that spiel that I just gave you is all in this little tweet. I say, okay, Trump, so you blame the bad debt deal that you made with Dems on Republicans' refusal to eliminate one of the last protections against mob rule. Got it. So for what it's worth, 
Um, so I'm going to keep going out there and doing this, this tweeting. That's what's going on. What we do know about Trump, though, and, uh, you know, I ask you, Trump supporters, and we're going to have this conversation ongoing. You, there's no real time to call in now. But feel free to call in on, I don't know, about Monday. Monday's going to be 9-11-ish, but maybe we'll have uh, some time if you want to. I, I do invite Trump supporters to call in and explain how you might still support Trump after the stuff that he's doing right now. He wants to codify DACA, which I know a lot of you guys, especially you anti-immigration people, you don't like, but he, he wants to do it. And now he's made a deal with the Dems that looks really bad. They're going to increase the debt in the future. Of course, he was very transparent about this in the debates. What did he say? He said, oh, this debt, it's horrible, it's horrible. And we don't even have a world-class infrastructure to show for it. Our airports look like third world countries. He always connected the issue of the debt to infrastructure. Implication, debt is fine so long as you get infrastructure. So I'm not surprised one bit. Uh, More tweets there. Good news. Ben Shapiro's speech at Berkeley, which we're going to follow closely on this show and see what happens, sold out in the first 45 minutes of the show and he's urging UC Berkeley to release the other thousand tickets. Now, if you're on Twitter, go ahead and retweet that for him. And one last piece of good news house unanimously passes a bill to curb civil forfeiture by the IRS. Thanks to the Institute for justice for that. A couple pieces of music there, Beethoven Sonata 14 moonlight Sonata. I am embarrassed. I have to confess that I actually uh, forgot the second movement of this, which is horrible. But I blame Stuart Ham, whose version of the first movement of Moonlight Sonata you see at the bottom. I hadn't listened to the full thing for so many years. Uh, Stuart Ham's version I'd listened to more. Check out both of those if you haven't listened to them at all or either for a long time or something. That Beethoven starting at nine minutes is awesome. Okay, everyone, I'll see you back here Monday. Thanks for listening. And we will talk, uh, was it Monday, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 p.m. Pacific. Take care. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.